Good morning, everyone. We're going to read from uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 36. 25 to 36. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Wonderful. If you have a Bible in front of you, that would be great to have it, have it open there at Romans chapter 11. As we begin to think about this passage together, uh, we're going to think about uh, how we compare ourselves to each other. Comparing ourselves to each other is, is like a reflex, isn't it? You hardly have to think about it. We, we do it all the time. We compare ourselves to each other. Let me give you a few scenarios. Uh, there's a man, he finally came to admit that he had a problem. He was successful in life, he had a good business, but he came come to realise that he was drinking too much, his drinking had gotten out of control. And so he went to visit the doctor, and the doctor recommended that he go to a support group, and he went along to the support group. And when the doctor asked him, how, how did it go at the support group? The man said, I'm never going back. I'm nothing like those people. They're addicts. See, he compared himself. Well, what about the young mum at the, the checkout? She's trying to load her, her items onto the conveyor belt. Uh, at the same time, her three-year-old is having a meltdown in the aisle, screaming and shouting. Uh, and as she looks up, she sees another mum with her toddler at the till next to her, and both are just standing staring at her and she feels judged <laughs> what about this someone sits there in the pew on Sunday morning they're looking around as they look around they see people come in they do this every Sunday they've been coming to church for many many years they've served much in the church they've given a lot and as they look around at people coming in through the doors although they would never verbalise this comment 
they think, I'm probably one of the most committed people <laughs> in this church. Compare ourselves, don't we? we? We do it all the time. Do you recognize this tendency in your own heart? I see it, I see it in mine. Maybe you look down on others, you feel superior. Or maybe you look around at others and you feel inferior. Either case, the, the root is the same. The root is sinful pride. Now, not, not all comparison is bad, is it? Not all comparison is bad. I can see someone in the church family and I look at them and I think, oh, they, they love more than I do. They love in sacrificial ways. And I can look at them and I, I, can, I can be both encouraged by them. I can delight in their loving service and I can be challenged to love more myself. That's not a bad comparison. But more often than not, our comparisons are, are rooted in sinful pride, aren't they? And we're returning to this letter to the Romans today. Uh, and we've already encountered this theme of pride in the book of Romans. And what Paul is doing in this final chapter, this final passage of Romans 11, is he's taking aim at sinful pride. I don't know if you've noticed as we've gone through this letter, uh, we've been going through it now for off and on for, for a year. Uh, and as we've gone through, I don't know if you've noticed, but certain themes come up time and time again. We're saved by faith alone. Big emphasis. It's not works, it's faith. Faith in the gospel of Jesus. We're saved by God's grace. We don't deserve it, but it's all of God's grace. The gospel is for everyone, not limited to one kind of people. It's for all people everywhere. That's been a big theme, hasn't it, in the book of Romans? And the fact that the gospel leaves no room for boasting, no room for human pride, that's also been a major theme in this letter of, of Paul's. He's repeatedly singled out human pride and said no boasting. Why, why the repetition? Why the repetition? Well, the repetition comes because we forget, don't we? The repetition is, is necessary. The repetition is necessary because pride is a, a perennial weed in the Christian community. And perhaps more than anything else, perhaps more than anything else, sinful pride destroys church unity. Isn't it? It's our pride that drives us apart. It's often in our pride that we take offense. It's often our pride that keeps our relationships superficial <laughs> and at a distance. These uh, verses that Dylan read to us, they need uh, careful thought. They're, they're compact, like much of chapters 9 to 11. They need careful thought. But as we, we think about them, we mustn't lose sight on what, what Paul is aiming at. Through his word this morning to us, God intends to cultivate humility in our hearts and in our church family. He wants to turn us away from self-glory and turn us towards his glory. He wants to bring us to true worship. Or if, if you want something that's a bit more memorable, he wants us not to have a big head, but a bowed head. Not a big head, 
but a bowed head. That's the, that's the purpose of these verses. So we're going to try and keep that in view as we work through the details of what Paul's saying. You can see that, can't you, right at the start, uh, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. Lest you be wise in your own sight. If you've got an NIV, it says something like, so that you don't become conceited. That's what Paul is, is driving at in telling us what he tells us in this passage. And the antidote to our pride is, is knowledge. So verse 25, Paul describes this. He says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. So he's going to tell them a mystery and this mystery is going to kind of deflate their, their pride. In the Bible, a mystery isn't comes from kind of impossible puzzle that you just can't figure out, like some difficult chemistry equation. In the Bible, a, a mystery is something that's been hidden and then has been revealed. Something that's hidden and then has been revealed. Something that we wouldn't know unless God had told us. And this mystery that Paul writes about is to do with God's plan of salvation and how he unfolds it on his world, particularly in relation to Jews and Gentiles. That's a mystery that Paul's writing about. I just want to try to just jog our memories because it's four weeks since we looked at the first half of Romans 11. But can you remember in, in the first half of Romans 11, Paul described like three movements or three waves of God's unfolding plan of salvation. Hopefully, as I say these, it might just kind of <laughs> jog a few memories. But the first, the first movement uh, was that the, the gospel comes to, to the Jews, to Israel. Israel rejects, by and large, generally, the gospel of Jesus. That's what we see in Acts. And then the gospel and the grace of God overflow to the Gentiles. Second movement uh, was that Israel sees the nations, the Gentiles, enjoying God's grace and blessing, provoked to envy, turn and repent. That's the second movement. Think of it as like there's a story of the prodigal son. You, you know that story. The, the younger son goes off to the far country. He's enjoying himself. He's, he's taken his inheritance. He's gone. And, and while he's away, uh, he decides, oh, I'm going to go home. Even my father's servants are living better than me. He goes home. The father welcomes him home, kills the fatted calf, ring on his finger, coat on his back, and he's welcomed in and the party starts. It's overflowing grace to the Gentiles. And then who else is there? There's the older brother. He hears the party. He sees the good times. He sees the fatted calf has been killed. And he looks into the party and his father welcomes him in as well. And in Jesus' story, the prodigal son, it's kind of cliffhanger, isn't it? <laughs> the older son, is, is he, does he come in? Does he not? Well, Paul, as he, as he looks in the Old Testament scriptures, he sees the older son does finally come in. He's envious of, of the grace he wants to join the party and he humbles himself and he comes in. And then thirdly, the third movement is an outpouring of God's blessing on the world, Jew and Gentile united in Christ. Paul put it like this, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? And so this is the mystery that Paul is, is writing about and he, he explains it again. He says there, verse 26, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. 
As we've gone through Romans 9 to 11, that's the theme has been the hardness of Israel. Now Paul is writing about the salvation of all Israel. He says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. What does he mean? This, is, this week, that little sentence has taken a lot of my time. It's hard, it's tricky. You open the commentaries and there's all sorts of ideas. And so as we think about what it means for Paul to write that all Israel will be saved, in this way all Israel will be saved, just got three questions to try and help us work, work through that. Here's the first question. What does Paul mean by all Israel? What does Paul mean by all Israel? <laughs> Throughout chapter 11, Paul has been focusing on two distinct groups, Gentiles, and, and Jews. And so I think when Paul says here, all Israel, he, he's, he's writing about the salvation of the Jewish people. And I think all Israel means all those Jews who are elect of God, all those throughout the ages who are chosen by his grace. Paul writes about election further down in the passage in verse 28. I don't think Paul means by all Israel, every single descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that has ever lived. I don't think he even means every single of Abraham, every single descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob at one future point. Paul writes about the fullness of the Gentiles. And when he writes all Israel will be saved, I think he's writing about a fullness of, of Israel, a fullness of Jews. It's clear when, when Paul is writing in chapter 11 that he expects some of this fullness, some of this salvation to appear in his day. So he talks about making much of his ministry to make his fellow Jews envious in order to save some. And we should expect in the 21st century that there are those Jews who are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ who are coming to find God's grace. But also as I read this chapter, it seems to me that in the purposes and mercy of God, there will come among, a time among the Jews, among Israel, where a general hardness is replaced by a general receptivity and openness to the gospel. Where once it was said of Israel, they were hard in rejecting Jesus. It may be said of Israel that they have received him, generally. You may think differently to me this morning. As I pondered this, I was helped by some words from Sinclair Ferguson. He said this, the interpretation of any prophecy is given its fullest and clearest interpretation only when that prophecy is fulfilled. <laughs> So while we, while we may hold our, our interpretation of, of Romans 11 firmly, we should hold it humbly. So that's all Israel. What, what is this salvation? That's the second question. What is this salvation that Paul writes about? This salvation, notice, is not about geography and politics. <laughs> this salvation that Paul is writing about here in Romans 11 is a salvation that he's been writing about all the way through the gospel. It's the salvation, the same salvation that you and I have come to enjoy if we know Jesus. 
It's a salvation from sin. It's salvation from our own rebellious hearts. It's salvation from the righteous wrath of God. That's the salvation that Paul is writing about. Listen to verse 27. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. See that? This is a salvation that's about repentance and forgiveness. And the book of Paul's quote there comes from the passage that we read earlier uh, from Isaiah chapter, chapter 59. And it's interesting if you compare, compare the two, there's a slight word change. So in Isaiah 59, it says a deliverer will come to Zion. When Paul takes the truth of that verse and applies it to his fellow countrymen, he says a deliverer will come from Zion. Why, why the change? Well, I, I think it's because what Israel needs is not something new. What Israel needs is to see the salvation that has already appeared. Remember Simeon? Last week we looked at his, his song. He looked at the baby Jesus and what did he say? My eyes have seen your salvation. And so as Paul prays for his fellow countrymen, he's praying for them that they'll have a Simeon-like experience. That they will come to see what Simeon sees. And that should be our prayer too. You see, God doesn't have two salvation plans. He doesn't have one plan for the Jews and one plan for the Gentiles. He has one salvation plan, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon can look down at the baby and say, my eyes have seen your salvation. The only way anyone is saved, ever, is by grace, through faith, in the proclaimed gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only way anyone's saved. It doesn't mean when people become Christians, they stop being Jews or they stop being Gentiles. Just like when you become Christian, you don't stop being a man or a woman. Those, those differences remain. But the gospel enables us to embrace our distinctions while removing barriers and divisions. That's what the gospel does. When people receive the gospel, differences and distinctions flourish and divisions and barriers are, are removed. So that's what this salvation is. It's about forgiveness. Why in this way? Paul says in this way, all Israel will be saved. Why, why in this way or in this manner? When Paul writes in this manner, he's not so much thinking about the nuts and bolts of history and a timeline and how it's all going to work out. He's thinking about the way God has done it. Why in this way? And this is the big point. The purpose of God bringing salvation to the Gentiles and to the Jews in the way that he does it the big point, he does it in a way that magnifies his mercy and leaves no room for anyone to have a big head. That's why God has done it in this way. Paul is saying to these, 
Gentile believers, particularly in Rome, he's saying, don't you dare look down your noses at your Jewish brothers and sisters. He's saying, don't you dare feel superior to the, the Jews in the synagogue down the road who are giving you a hard time. There's no room for, for big heads. Listen to what he says. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. Do you see, do you see the emphasis on those, of those verses? It's our disobedience and it's God's mercy. That's, that's the big emphasis of, of, of the way God has, has done this. And in case we missed it, he just repeats it again in this summary sentence. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Paul's not there straining some kind of universalism as though all will be saved. But he's saying that what is true of every believer is that they are disobedient and God is merciful. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, that's the truth about you. It's the truth about me. I have been deeply disobedient and God has been incredibly merciful. If you want, in the words of John Newton in his latter years as his memory was going, still etched there on his mind was this confession. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. That's, that's who we are, isn't it, at the, at the core of our being as Christians. I, I said it already as we've looked at Romans 9 to 11, we are objects of God's mercy. And that's how we ought to think about ourselves. That's how we ought to think about our brothers and sisters. We are simply objects of God's mercy. And so when I look at someone else in the church who has different gifts from me, maybe someone else who seems further along in the Christian walk and I'm tempted to feel inferior or small, it's because I've lost sight of the simple fact that both they and I are objects of God's mercy. Everything that we have is a gift. What, what do we have? What do you have? What do I have that we have not received? Everything we have is a gift. Perhaps when I'm talking to someone after church and they, they say something to me that might be a bit thoughtless or, or critical and I'm quick to take offence, well, that's because I've lost sight of the fact that I am just simply an object of God's mercy. It's my pride that's offended. But when I'm overwhelmed with God's mercy, I'll be the hardest person to offend. Pride will choke our relationships in the church. And it affects our attitudes towards those outside. It makes us apathetic to sharing the gospel. We think there may be some people who, who are just beyond the limits, won't share the gospel with them. That's pride. Maybe this week, meditate on verse 32. It's a pride-killing verse. 
For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. We are vessels of mercy. When we realise that, the words of this song will, will be sung from a full heart beneath the cross of Jesus. His family is my own. One stranger's chasing selfish dreams, now won through grace alone. How could I now dishonour the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. This passage calls us not to have a big head, but to have a, a bowed head. And that's where, where Paul goes in the final verses, verses 33 to 36. It's as though as he gets to the end of chapter 11, he's climbed to the very highest peak and he turns around and he looks back at the, the view that, of, of the t- terrain that he's travelled. He looks back at those deep valleys, those dark valleys of, of man's rebellion and sin where the creature shakes fist at the creator, will not acknowledge him with thanks, will not glorify him. He looks back at the wonder of Christ's sacrificial death as he dies on the cross in our place, taking God's wrath. He looks back at the beautiful simplicity of of salvation and how the gospel is received by faith and it doesn't require our works because Christ has done it all. He looks back at how we're absolutely secure as those who belong to Jesus, secure in his love both now and forever. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as he thinks about the unfolding plans, it hits Jew and Gentile and how it glorifies God's mercy. It's almost as though he's got no words left. Just oh, <laughs> oh, as he looks at the, the scene, as he thinks about the immense sovereignty of God as he brings salvation to bear on his world. Paul has not been writing this letter. I keep saying Paul's written this letter, but actually we'll get to the end and we realise Paul has dictated this letter and so someone else has been writing it down. And now it's as though Paul is, is listening to his own preaching. And even as he listens to his own voice, he's blown away. Not because he's a great preacher, but because of the wonder and glory of the Lord. He says, oh, what wisdom. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who, who could ever conceive of this plan? This is the greatest and truest story that's ever been written. This story of, of God's salvation. Who, who could make this up? We wouldn't come up with this story. This comes out of the mind of God. No one's given him counsel. We'll get up tomorrow morning, Monday morning. We'll have our plans, won't we? <laughs> Things that we're going to do. And I'm sure for all of us, we'll get in bed tomorrow night and there'll be things that have been left undone. The day will have probably unraveled in several ways and there'll be regrets. That'll be true of all of us. That's never true of God. His plans never unravel. He has no regrets. He has perfect power and sovereignty. The hymn writer writes about the Lord, that he, he plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. 
And that means he leaves no footprints. It means we cannot see where he's been or, or where he's going. His plan is often kind of inscrutable. We can't fathom it. But God knows. His wisdom knows no end. What knowledge he has, doesn't he? What knowledge he has of each of us, the intricacies of our lives, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He can take all the, uh, the trouble, all of the, the, the kind of leftover threads of our life and he can draw them together into his purposes and use them for his glory. What wisdom and what grace. Paul says, who has ever given to God that God should repay them? It's a rhetorical question, but you know the answer, don't you? Who's given to God? He should be repaid. No one. No one's given anything to God. God is the source of all good. Think about the, the child who buys a present for their parent, their dad. They come to the dad, they ask for the money so they can go and buy the dad a gift. They bring it back to the dad and give it back to the dad. Daddy's really pleased with the gift. He's delighted with it. But in one sense, the child has given nothing. Because all that we have, we, we owe to God. And when we give to him, we merely give back what he has given to us. What an overflowing fountain of grace and generosity our father is, isn't he? In creation, he's generous. Think about back to the garden. What does he say? All of these trees and plants I've given you for food. God could have just made apple trees. He makes apple trees, banana trees, orange trees, grapes. We're out of fruits now. Help me. <laughs> so much variety. All of these generously given. He's generous in creation. He's generous in redemption. We've thought about that in, in Romans he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, will he not with him also graciously give us all things? What grace. And then what glory. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. These last few verses, these last three, four verses of Romans 11 are so rich. I would commend them to you in the coming week. Just take them and, and turn them over in your mind and, and dwell on them. But can you see here what's happening to Paul? He's getting some perspective. As he worships, he's getting himself in perspective. There's this sense of smallness. It's as if he's losing himself and also finding himself in the wisdom and grace and glory of God. That's what worship does to us. I don't know about you, but I want more of this. <laughs> this beholding of God's wisdom and glory and grace. We as, as a church need more of this. Because when our heads are bowed and our hearts are full of worship, pride shrinks. Sinful comparisons, they just fade away we become hard to offend and we just see ourselves as we are we are so very small and we are so very loved 
It's wonderful, isn't it? We're going to have a few moments of quiet before we sing our, our final song. We're not our final song, our song before communion. Just a few moments of quiet as the musicians come up. Just ponder what God has spoken through his word. Take hold of something to remember.